This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. Learn more at organicgrowerschool.org. This week on Meet and 3, we continue our trade series with a piquant look at the many faces of the spice trade, from the high price tag of saffron to the ubiquity of chilies and the potential ripple effect that farmer protests in India may have on the global spice market. You know, farmers are, are protesting because they feel like their lives and livelihoods are on the line. You find it in a lot of cured foods, like cured meat and Parmesan cheese. Um, you also find it in ripening foods, like ripe tomatoes are very high in uh, MSG. So there's sources of it all over the natural world. Tune in to Meet and 3, HRN's weekly food news roundup, wherever you get your podcasts. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we're going to be talking about price fixing. I'm really excited to have uh, Peter Karstensen back. Um, He has been a guest in the past. He joined me to talk about the dairy industry a couple of years ago, Um, but he is, for those of you who don't remember, um, and in fact, his CV is so impressive that there's no way you could keep it all in your brain. Uh, He is a professor of law emeritus. From 1993 to 2002, he served as Associate Dean for Faculty Research and Development at the University of Wisconsin Law School. He is a graduate of the University of Wisconsin, received his law degree and a master's degree in economics from Yale University. And from 1968 to 1973, he was an attorney, listen up people, at the Antitrust Division of the United States Department of Justice, assigned to the evaluation section, where one of his primary areas of work was on questions of relating competition policy and law to regulated industries. So you can see he is the Mac daddy on this subject. (laughs) He has been a member of the faculty of the University of Wisconsin Law School since 1973. He is a senior fellow of the American Antitrust Institute. We love you. And he is also the author of Competition Policy and Buyer Power, which I think came out in 2017. Is that right, Peter? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining me uh, on the show once again. I'm very excited to chat with you. I've been, as I said to you, I think before in my email, our email exchange, that I had, uh, in fact, been following this um, antitrust or rather price fixing, um, I guess you could call it a scandal, um, in the poultry industry for some years now. And so um, it has been the subject of an ongoing class action suit since 2016. And in the class action suits, it is alleged that the price fixing has actually been going on since 2008. So first, if I could ask you to describe what brought about the class action suit in the first place, then we'll move on into the federal investigation. Okay. Uh, Just uh, a a lawyer's quibble. The the effect of the alleged conspiracy is to raise prices, but it is not a conspiracy that is claimed to be a, quote, price-fixing conspiracy. In these products, there are so many different uses that it's really very hard, really very hard for uh, alternative firms to agree on, uh, you know, an enormous price agenda. What they can agree on is to restrict output. If you cut the amount of supply, you're going to raise prices generally. So it's sort of a technical point, but it explains at least part of what's what's going on. 
Um, yeah, the case gets brought in, in 2016 after lawyers had spent some substantial amount of time, I assume, investigating and evaluating uh, the, the merits of a possible uh, uh, claim. It, the role of agrostats in coordinating information about supply uh, characteristics in uh, the poultry market was known for several years prior to uh, the bringing of the lawsuit. Some of us, myself, some other economists I know, kept saying, how can they do this legally? How can they possibly have this kind of coordination of information about supply? Great question. Uh, mm -hmm. Legally. And it took a significant investment of time and effort by uh, a set of lawyers to figure out exactly how to frame the case and to gather the necessary evidence because the way modern antitrust law of this sort, class action antitrust law, is practiced, courts require you almost to prove your case with your complaint before you've had any chance actually to do any serious discovery. Now, that's an exaggeration, to be fair. But you've got to have a lot of evidence that you uh, – uh, evidentiary claims. That's a better way to say it. Uh, at the front end. So it took a while for the, this case to get put together. Uh, and so it gets filed in, in 2016. Uh, I don't know the timeline. My guess is they were probably working on that for at least a year uh, in preparation. Yeah, I would think so. And then the class action suit morphed into a federal investigation. Um, and I guess that was, I guess, in the last two years or something. I couldn't quite identify when the class action suit turned into an actual DOJ investigation, but I, my understanding that it was at the very end of the, you know, like around maybe 2017 or 2018. Does that yeah, sound I right to you? I think it's 2018. I couldn't find the exact date either. And it's, morph is not quite, again, the class action continues. What happened was that at some point, the antitrust division lawyers said, uh, uh, of the Department of Justice serious uh, interest in this case, and the way it surfaced was with the with a request to the court where the civil lawsuit is going on to suspend discovery in the case to allow for a federal investigation. Um, there was a period of about six months or so when the uh, civil case was suspended. The feds were conducting an investigation. I think it was both civil and criminal. Those are two different parts of the uh, of the antitrust division. And interestingly, they don't talk to each other. That uh, is interesting. The criminal side... And this is because of a, of a set of rules. You can't use your criminal investigation to support a civil investigation or case. So you've got to keep them pretty separate. Uh, what we know is that there was a period of uh, inaction on the part of the, uh, of the private lawsuit. And then things were resumed. Discovery uh, was resumed. Uh, 
things were proceeding towards the next stages of litigation. And then um, this fall, the criminal part of the Justice Department brought criminal indictments against several Pilgrim's Pride executives, including, I think, the CEO of Pilgrim's Pride. Pilgrim's Pride is owned by JBS Swift. Uh, And so um, I think it's three individuals were criminally indicted. It was pretty clear that if (laughs) you read the complaint, that there were a lot of other individuals who were implicated, as were uh, the corporation, uh, Pilgrim's Pride, Tyson, and others, the specific charges uh, were for bid coordination, price coordination. This was actual price fixing. Uh, How much were they going to charge or what would be the base price? What would be the discounts in sales to specific buyers? And what it illustrated was why the broader claimed conspiracy involved controlling output, not trying to control price, because it gets awfully complex. If you look at the at the indictment, the back and forth about, do we discount this 4.75% cents on the dollar, or do we discount it 4.78 cents? And you're talking about some such a huge amount. Sure. Uh, I mean, we produce 9 billion chickens a year in this country. Right. And each chicken, several pounds. So you (laughs) think about that, even (laughs) in the tenths of a cent, you wind up with an enormous amount of money involved over over the whole universe. So the government came in with those, with that lawsuit. What that tended to confirm was that there really was a lot of bad acting going on. Uh, and that's when things began to unravel in terms of the defendants um, uh-huh. uh, beginning so, to settle cases much more actively. Uh, the big fine that um, Pilgrim's Pride play, paid and that Tyson has paid uh, on top of uh, uh, the civil liabilities that are being negotiated. Wow. So there's both a civil liability issue and then the criminal fine, the fines that they, for example, the, the $110 million in fines when Pilgrim's Pride was actually found guilty or pled guilty to the price fixing and they paid the $110 million in fines. But they, that I was going to ask you that is like, will, though there will be further financial repercussions, um, from the civil suit that's going forward, uh, sort of in tandem with this criminal suit. Is that correct? That's correct. And again, technically, I suspect, I have not seen this, I suspect that Pilgrim's Pride pled no contest rather than guilty, because if you plead guilty, that becomes evidence that you violated the law, and there's still a lot of cases hanging out there. I see. If okay. you plead no contest, it, the plea cannot be used in subsequent civil litigation. The fact that <laughs> uh, all the information, all the evidence that you gave the government becomes discoverable and usable. And so it may be a distinction without much of a difference in a case like this, where the defendants, I'm sorry, where the civil plaintiffs were several years ahead of the government. Right, which they were. Right. 
Usually in these cases, the government brings the criminal case and then the plaintiffs come in and sue. And mm. there, the, the no contest plea followed then by, okay, now we've got to do the discovery and prove our case separately, you see, becomes more of a burden. Yes. Here, uh, the plaintiffs already had the evidence. I see. So let's 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 just kind of roll this back a little bit uh, so people can sort of catch up with where where we're at here. So the price fixing um, that was first uh, initiated by as what you alluded to as the class action suit that originated from one particular Maple Vale Farms, which claimed that uh, prices to them, I guess they're a sort of intermediary, uh, were being manipulated by supply and demand. But then also there was price fixing in terms of the price per pound that they were paying to the actual contract farmers who were raising the birds, if I'm not mistaken. And then that also had an impact on uh, the prices that consumers paid. So, you know, this this is actually a very you know, multi-pronged or a multi-faceted um, effort to bilk uh, just about anybody who could be cheated. Um, <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, like, right. It was a very coordinated effort. And and you alluded to agristats. Um, and agristats, let's just, uh, you know, tell people what that is. That is a service um, that provides uh, information about well, I don't really understand what the, you know, what are their, what are they, they're providing stats about how many birds are being grown or what the prices are being grown. Why is that legal? I mean, you alluded well, to the fact that that was potentially illegal. Why is it legal? Yeah. Okay. Um, and we need to come back to who all got harmed, but let's, let's start with Agristats. Agristats is uh, what we'd call an information coordinator. They, um, if you may want to make markets work, Buyers and sellers need some knowledge. They need information. They need to know how much is there, uh, something about prevailing prices, so you're not sitting around in complete ignorance. Uh, so that's the importance of information if you want to have a workable market. What Agristats offered was a confidential service. Only those that subscribed to the service and agreed to keep the information confidential could participate. They then set up standardized information uh, forms so that everybody was giving information in the same format. They consolidated that information, and it wasn't just the number of chickens, the number of laying hens. Uh, it was everything that was going on in these companies in terms of supply, sales, prices, uh, uh, et cetera. So, uh, and then they put this all together and shucked it out to, to all of their subscribers. You got to tell what your plant was or your company. And then supposedly to preserve, quote, confidentiality, unquote, all the other uh, uh, suppliers were given numbers, you know, number one, number two, number three. I see. The, the thing is, but if you know the industry at all, everybody seems to agree that it would be no challenge to figure out who number two is, who number three is. Of course, because so we're, we're talking about the four biggest poultry producer or, you know, marketers in the country, Tyson, Pilgrim's Pride, Sanderson's and Purdue. Right. 
there were other people involved, but they, they, I mean, so you're right. It wouldn't be hard at all to figure out who, you know, Tyson is number one, Purdue is number two, right? Well, (laughs) but you'd know more about specifics of plants, what they were doing, what they were processing. Mm. And so now you could tell which plant was doing what. That, then there were a set of more or less public communications by senior management. We really think we need to reduce the supply of chickens because there are too many chickens in the market. We need to increase exports, et cetera. So there are this set of signals given about let's do things that will reduce supply. And then, and, and they had some target numbers that were given. And simultaneously, you see, they could, they could look at their data from agristats and tell whether the other major competitors were doing what they said they were going to do. Well, uh, were we, they reducing supply? Were they reducing the number of laying hens? How many chickens were on feed? How many flocks were being put out? How many flocks were being uh, uh, killed, harvested? Uh, so that this is central, and you've got an industry, as I you know, talked earlier briefly, this is complicated stuff because a chicken is cut up in very, for various uses, uh, you know, whether it's uh, uh, buffalo wings at a restaurant or uh, uh, chicken used in various uh, prepared foods, et cetera, sold to people. Uh, so you've got, uh, so what you can do is you can keep an eye on the total supply. As supply goes down, price goes up. That was the core of the plaintiff's case here. Uh, and and agristats is absolutely central to this because otherwise there's so much static, so much um, such limits on what you can tell about what the other guy is doing that it's really hard unless you really trust your competitor uh, to be sure that you know that they're really honoring the commitment because one of the things is on the on the selling side, if I can lure the other guy into cutting his production and I don't cut mine, I can steal some of his market or her market, as the case may be. So that you really need, this is the classic trust, uh, but verify. And so that's where Agristats was just absolutely central to this uh, uh, arrangement to reduce production, raise prices to consumers, as you indicated, reduce the number of flocks and therefore the income of uh, the the growers wouldn't be. They wasn't so much the price paid as the number of flocks. And the way you make money in this, uh, as a grower, if you can make money at all, is to uh, have a sufficient number of flocks. And so when they reduce that, that harms the 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 growers. They also, and this is a little bit separate, but again, the Agristats data, I gather, was very was important in providing this information. They began to coordinate on the prices they were paying, the wages they were paying to the workers in the poultry processing uh, plants, and were probably engaged, and I, it's been a while since I read that complaint, but entered into what are called no-poach understandings, that is, I won't hire your workers. You won't hire our workers. So we don't compete that way for uh, for workers. So, so yeah. I mean, this 
Agristats is, is at the center of accomplishing all these kinds of harms to, comp to the competitive process that hurts producers, it produces, uh, hurts workers, hurts consumers. Right, right. And and so, and let me just ask you this quickly, but Agristats, do they work with all of the protein, animal protein industries? So this is potentially happening they also in, with, in pork they work, and, they, and cattle? They offer the same service mm -hmm. to pork uh, producers, the hog business, yep. and to the um, turkey business. Oh. Uh, uh, there's no evidence that I have seen that they have did this for beef cattle. Beef cattle are, are a somewhat different It puzzle. is a different business model, yes, right. <laughs> different animal, if you will. Yeah. Uh, and uh, and there, 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 are, there is an ongoing lawsuit that has been approved to go forward uh, where the coordination seems to be more, much more done Inter, you know, by the various producers, uh, packers themselves. Now, lo and behold, this is Tyson. <laughs> this is uh, uh, JBS Swift. Sure. Uh, so it's the same gang of thugs. <laughs> Shouldn't call them that. Same, <laughs> yes, you should. Uh, same gang of they pirates. They are thugs and pirates. Uh, right. So it's the same gang. <laughs> They've learned how to coordinate through agristats in the businesses where that coordination is most easily done through this kind of data processing, right. beef packing is different in a variety of ways that make that may make the coordination easier when it's simply the the set of companies doing it because they know so much about what's going on in each other's plants. Yeah, that's right. And and what and so will Agristat get any? Will there be any blowback on them from these lawsuits? I mean, do they deserve to get in trouble, or or are they just providing a service? And it's it's up to the players who subscribe to the service to play honorably, um, you know. But of course, no honor among thieves. But um, but yeah, is that is that sort of the the position of the say the Department of Justice in investigating this matter? That Agristat is kind of squeaky clean. They just provide a service, you know. It's not their fault that the other guys are thugs and pirates. Uh, I don't know about the Justice Department. Let me uh, say something about that in a, in a second or two. Sure. Uh, Agristats is a named defendant in most of these cases. Why? Because it is actively coordinating the conspiracy. There's a long history, actually, in antitrust of an entrepreneur offering coordination services to a cartel. So... Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, it goes all the way back. There's a an early case uh, called American Column, where there was a trade association, and the CEO of the trade association would go around holding. I've always thought of them as revival meetings, telling <laughs> all the uh, the flooring manufacturers, "If you will just do what I tell you to do, your prices will go up." And the mm -hmm. Supreme Court said, "Well, he's guilty. Well, not guilty. It was a civil case. He's a, he should be enjoined from doing this." Right. So. On the civil side, Agristats is in this in a in I hope a big way because but for them, this would not have been possible. Of course. On right. the government side, one of my biggest frustrations is that at least so far we've seen this criminal case. We have not seen the case that the government ought to be bringing, which is against Agristats specifically for this kind of information exchange. It's so 
clearly violates the, um, I shouldn't say clearly violates. It seems to me it is clearly contrary to the uh, kind of guidance the government has given on information exchange in other industries and serves only for the purpose of creating the kind of anti-competitive conduct that we've observed. At the same time, I said this earlier, you need to have serious coordinate or not serious coordination, sorry, wrong way. You need to have real information so that people can make intelligent buying and selling decisions. The U.S. Department of Agriculture puts out some of that data. There are various other sources of data in different markets. I always love to tell the story that when I was a lawyer for the Justice Department, I was back for my father's family uh, family reunion picnic, the Iowa farm folks. And after we'd eaten there, I was with my little Justice Department badge in my pocket <laughs> with my cousins who raised beef cattle. And they were talking about future prices. Here's what I think the price is going to be. Here's, here's how to do this. Here's how to do that. I had no problem. I wasn't thinking, boy, I got to slap these guys with a subpoena and get them indicted because they were trying to be sophisticated sellers in a market where, you know, you've got a, a pen of 40 cattle, you're not going to affect the price of cattle. What you need to do is understand the market. So we, this is something that is desperate, where guidance is desperately needed. How much information can be provided to whom under what circumstances in order to have workably competitive markets and the information needs, I should think, to be generally publicly available. Uh, and when do you cross a line and that this is not uh, permissible uh, uh, information exchange? And I've been waiting for the Justice Department to do that, and they haven't done it. And I have spoken once or twice to a Justice Department lawyer and said, hey, you guys should be doing this. And then so I never know whether that means they're thinking about it or no, they don't really want to do it. Yeah, right. It's well, you know, given the givens in um, the way politics works now and indeed in the in the most recent iteration of the Department of Justice uh, with uh, William Barr running it, uh, you can imagine that the uh, pressure from uh, the industries on various uh, individuals in in those positions, whether it's in Congress or whether it's uh, I mean, I assume not in the Justice Department, but still, you know, pressure is brought to bear about what kinds of guidances and, and how they're, you know, whether or not things are going to get shut down or fixed or, or, you know, examined in any way. But, um, let's, let's go on for a second because I, I, I just want to point out, as you alluded at the beginning of the show, Tyson has just forked out $221.5 million in a settlement because they actually cooperated with the Justice Department in the beginning of this investigation. Um, and so they are sidestepping any, further investigation. Is that right? And certainly sidestepping criminal charges. Um, but that's a very big fine. So what does that actually mean about what they were doing? <laughs> no good. Um, <laughs> but that's, is anyone going to jail? <laughs> Mr. Tyson is not going to jail. It, it looks like none of the Tyson game. It right. looks like we'll go to jail. Uh, on well, the other they cooperated, hand, right? So that's what they paid for. As long as they don't screw up on the cooperation. Uh, there has been at least one case, I think it was in ocean shipping, where they made one of these um, uh, uh, settlements where they'd come in uh, and, and spill their guts 
only they didn't spill as much as they were supposed to. And the government revoked the immunity and um, the amnesty and went back and began criminal proceedings aimed at, at jailing some oh, wow. of the CEOs. Now, I don't remember how that came out. I know there was a lot of concern. So the Tyson folks are out from under on that part of liability. Uh, they, uh, uh, on the other hand, the former CEO of Pilgrim's Pride is looking potentially at up to 10 years in prison. Nobody's ever gotten 10 years in prison for price fixing, but they certainly are sending price fixing executives to prison for several years, um, which is not exactly where early retirement usually takes these folks. So, Good one, Peter. Yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. No, I don't think they expected to have that. <laughs> Still, yeah, reward. I mean, I figured Tyson... Tyson must have gone in fairly early when the, back to a, uh, 2018 or so yeah, and said, look, yeah, we were involved in a lot more than just the kind of output coordination that is the civil lawsuit. We were involved in essentially bid rigging, uh, 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 price setting with respect to particular customers. And here's, you know, here's what we were doing. Here's here's the people we were doing it with. Um, uh, go out and make their day. Uh, and that seems to be what, what went on. And then at that point, of course, the Justice Department is going to look at them and say, you know, guys, you're going to have to pony up something here. Uh, so they did. Uh, after all, they waited a while. They waited until the Justice Department really had begun an investigation, it looks like. So they're not you know, it was only, okay, the handwriting is really now on the wall. We better do something. Uh, and that's often when there's a rush to the Justice Department door. Hey, can we confess before anybody else confesses? Well, why haven't the other guys done it? I mean, now that they see that Pilgrim's Pride got, you know, had a significant fine, uh, why haven't Sanderson and Purdue also said, oh, well, we're going to cooperate. We didn't really mean to do this. Oh, my God. You know, <laughs> like. Uh, well, partly because first one through the door. Oh, he's the one the who deal. gets the deal, right, of course. Gets the really good deal. Yeah. Uh, numbers two and three don't get such a good deal. Sure, that um, makes sense. And, of course, Tyson, I'm sorry, uh, 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 JBS uh, Pilgrim's Pride, they were in a really interesting box because they were the target. And and I, you know, I don't know. One possibility is, after all, that the Pilgrim's Pride management that was fairly separate from the rest of JBS Swift uh -huh. was lying to senior management of JBS Swift. Oh, no, we're not uh -huh. doing anything wrong. Well, JBS um, has had tons of problems of their own because the Baptista brothers both went to jail. Yeah, so they're, they're, they're a bunch I of mean, crooks already. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah. I mean, you know, the whole outfit is rotten, including the right. rotten meat so they that, send us. I mean, you know, ugh. hate them. Yeah. And it also depends on what your lawyers are telling you. Yeah. Now, you, you, if the lawyers are saying, look, we've got some good defenses here because, hmm. uh, it's, uh, it's a, you know, you, you've got a pro, you know, you've got, this is a really challenging strategic point for the, uh, for the, for the, um, for the corporation 
for the individuals and for their lawyers. How yeah. are you going to handle this? Uh, and uh, you know, I, I'm a little, uh, and I think now if I, if I, it sticks in my mind that Pilgrim's Pride slash JBS Swift is, has come forward with some kind of settlement with the government as well. Um, oh. So that you now they're, they've reached a point where they had to get out and they, they, you know, this has been one of those things that's been sort of falling for a while. The little yes. guys began to settle early, paying in, you know, two or three million here and there. Uh, it, it, in some sense, the handwriting was on the wall for at least a couple of years, really, when the Justice Department came Got in. Got involved, right. Yeah, because you yeah. can kind of string along a class action suit for a good long while. Um, but I mm -hmm. think when the DOG gets in, DOJ gets involved, I, you know, it, it all happens a lot faster. I've no doubt. Um, I, you know, what what's going to keep these guys from doing it again? Like what, you know, how once they've paid the big fines and all the dust settles, aren't they just going to go back to business as usual? Well, that's a real problem. Uh, there's a an economist, ag economist at uh, now retired at Purdue, John Connor, who has mm -hmm. studied uh, the compensation that uh, cartels have received compared to the uh, harm that they've caused, the losses that they've caused, the, or even more importantly, the gains that they have made. Right. And his conclusion is that in general, cart, uh, a company that engages in cartel behavior winds, out, winds up net ahead and then has an incentive to do it again. Sure. So again, I, this is where I was talking earlier about the need to have guidelines mm -hmm. for the kind of information that can be exchanged. I think in poultry particularly, there are enough competitors that if you could preserve that market structure and restrict the kind of detailed information being exchanged, you have a reasonable shot at having a workably competitive market. But neither, as far as I can tell, USDA which under Packers the Stockyards Act could do this, nor the Justice Department, which could do it through a civil lawsuit seeking an injunction that would specify what could be done, that would uh, control not just agristats, but the but the guys that were buying that information, the uh, mm -hmm. uh, the Tysons, etc., to structure. You know, okay, here are the ground rules going forward. And I should add on this point, because you talked about the politics of, uh, of yes. Justice Department decisions. It's really interesting because this information stuff is front and center in the um, Facebook and Google litigation. Yes, I Here thought about that when I was developing this outline. I thought, oh, this yeah. is exactly the same thing. Yeah. And, and so, but here's a somewhat easier, more tractable framework to begin to try to talk about, okay, here's here's the kind of information that can be exchanged, retained, et cetera. Um, and so, but rather than use that opportunity, at least, and again, we're looking at it from the outside, there doesn't seem to be any effort to use this, in, the, this opportunity to begin to set those kinds of ground rules. And I'm, I'm perplexed given that both the Trade Commission and the Justice Department seem now to have realized information exchange is a really important competitive tool. 
Right, right. Very interesting. We're going to take a short break, Peter, like literally a very short break. And we'll okay. be right back with Professor Emeritus Peter Carstensen talking more about uh, poultry price fixing and the giant whopping huge fines that are being paid in these various investigations. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. This episode is brought to you by Organic Grower School, offering a holistic crop management series for farmers starting on March 23rd. This holistic crop management curriculum and training opportunity is in partnership with Certified Naturally Grown. Growing a viable farm business is sustained by continuous learning of the land and your products. In this workshop series, growers across Southern Appalachia and beyond will gain tools to manage their crop production for whole farm success. Organic Grower School is offering the Holistic Crop Management Training as a six-part webinar series. It will include a mixture of videos, resources, and live virtual meetings between March 23rd and April 27th. Learn more, meet the instructors, and register now at organicgrowerschool.org. Now, let's talk, because you mentioned this, and I and I wanted to really dig into this for a couple of minutes. The Packers and Stockyards Act of 1921 is supposed mm-hmm. to regulate this exact kind of thing of like, uh, you know, how um, large uh, aggregators like Pers- Tyson, Purdue et al. Um, are able to uh, f- decide on what prices that they pay uh, their growers and and um, you know and basically maintain a competitive market. So, talk t- tell us a little bit about the P- P- Packers and Stockyards Act, and also wasn't it supposed to be like totally reinvigorated under Tom Vilsack, and somehow that just never happened in eight years of his tenure at the USDA. I mean, wait, <laughs> like what what happened there, and and what is the Packers and Stockyards Act for people who do not uh, kn- are not familiar with it? Okay, a little uh, history here. There was a real problem back, uh, in, in, say, World War One and before, yeah. with the five major packers, which did both pork and beef, uh, uh, do harming farmers, in particular by various kinds of price discrimination, uh, uh, collusion to set prices, low prices, etc. Mm-hmm. There was a big investigation by the Federal Trade Commission, five volumes, as I recall, wow. uh, led to a lawsuit by the Justice Department that was settled with an, uh, an incredible consent decree that actually required the meatpackers to sell off. They were going into grocery retailing, production of various kinds of groceries. Transportation, as I recall as well. They were, and they were to sell their ownership at the stockyards. That's where you used to sell cattle rather than uh, uh, out of the feedlot. And uh, and that, I footnote, uh, it took until 1930 for that decree to actually be fully enforced. But that's, Mm. uh, uh, Congress thought the decree was inadequate. It did not sufficiently police the conduct mm. of the meat packers, both in their conduct in the stockyards and generally. And so in 1921, it adopted the Packers and Stockyards Act that set up a fairly detailed regulatory 
uh, uh, set of conditions for the operation of stockyards and imposed a more general requirement that there be no unfair discriminatory conduct by meat packers with respect to uh, uh, sellers of beef uh, and and pork. Parenthesis, poultry was not included at this point because right. there was no public market in poultry. It was a local business. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, that, that part of the statute expressly gave the Secretary of Agriculture rulemaking authority, could make rules to interpret what was fairness, mm-hmm. what was discriminatory. <clears throat> Fast forward, slowly forward, (laughs) there were a series of rules adopted mostly focused on the duty to pay, which was a separate kind of issue because you you send your cattle and then you wait to be paid. Well, there was a whole series of things imposed on that. And I will say USDA appears to do a pretty good job of enforcing those rules. Uh, But the broader question of fairness... um, largely evaporated with the disappearance of stockyards in the 1950s as cattle slaughter, pork processing moved out into rural areas and the buyers went farm to farm. And again, I mentioned my cousins. So this is um, late 60s. They had three or four, maybe five buyers coming to their farms to look at their cattle. So they had a competitive environment the opportunity to cheat and manipulate was much limited. Uh, then the industry reconsolidated, uh, and we moved back to right. a structure that is as concentrated or more concentrated than it was when the Packers and Stockyards Act was adopted. And in that period, neither a Democratic Secretary of uh, Agriculture nor a Republican adopted new rules to police the market. So we come forward to um, the Obama election and the new assistant attorney general, Christine Varney, had the idea of having, because it was a big issue uh, uh, then, of having Mm -hmm. a set of workshops on competition in agriculture co-sponsored by the Justice Department and uh, the Department of Agriculture, bracket. The Federal Trade Commission was not to be found Hmm. a, a source of continued irritation to me in any event. Um, There was a series of four workshops around the country where farmers raised a whole series of problems. Secretary Vilsack was at all of them. Uh, Attorney General Holder was at, I think, three of the four. Hmm. Uh, 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 So, okay, we're really going to do something. Uh, At this point, Secretary, uh, Assistant Attorney General Varney began to bring some lawsuits that challenged cooperatives. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, uh, the um, Packers and Stockyards Administration initiated a set of rules making proposals that were really going to restructure, especially poultry contracting. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, Varney suddenly uh, decided she wanted to leave office and go and do something else. Um uh, uh, because uh, a certain senator from Vermont, who was not an independent, uh, had decided that this was a threat to his client, uh, or so I'm told, uh, uh, a certain large dairy co-op. Um, <laughs> uh, so the challenge to co-ops went away. The, uh, the Obama administration made the decision 
to trade off continued work on those rules against other considerations that they had, uh, other policy things, politics. You've got to make some trades. Yeah. So as a result, Congress actually added a couple of additional rules to the set of rules that the USDA already had reflecting poultry, which were steps forward, let it be, let it be said. But the broader rulemaking process came to a grinding halt and stayed halted until the end of the Obama administration when a couple of rules were adopted. That uh, uh, One rule was adopted, I should say. Another was set for final adoption. And of course, Sonny Perdue canceled both of those of course. rules. Uh, uh, meanwhile, and this is where Vilsack really deserves to be faulted, the USDA did nada, nothing to enforce the existing rules to bring any cases to pursue any other options that they had, not only in this area, but also in dairy. So uh-huh. um, many of us are not looking with enthusiasm at his return. Definitely not. There certainly is the possibility of, of returning now that there's a Democratic majority in both houses and a the former chairman, the, chair, the man who had been chair of the House Ag Committee uh, was defeated uh, in the last election so that the committee is now under very different leadership. So there's a much greater possibility of getting some good rules through USDA, which could include rules about the kinds of information that packers can exchange. And now, starting 15, 20 years ago, poultry is included along with beef and pork in the um, uh, under the Packers' Stock Yards Act. A longer right. answer than you were looking for, but there it is. No, 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 not at all. That was an actually really excellent, very helpful, and kind of like answered the next three questions in my outline. So that was good. One thing I do want to bring up about this is I often interview a really wonderful rancher named Mike Calicrate, who was oh, um, yes, I know Mike. You know Mike, right? So one of the things that Mike Mike was involved in a lawsuit. Um, and I know we're taking us off on a tangent and we really have to wrap this up, unfortunately, but, um, but Mike was involved in a lawsuit and I want you to bring, I want you to highlight what this really meant. As I understand it, the burden of proof in, in charging, uh, price fixing, uh, in the cattle market, um, amongst packers was, it turned out that you had to show that it was, you couldn't just individually sue uh, the Packers, you had to show that their uh, behavior was uh, was having an impact on the industry as a whole. I know I'm oversimplifying that. I wondered if you could just clarify that particular aspect of, of why we really haven't seen any movement um, in terms of, of giving relief, say, to the to the cattle industry, to yeah. uh, yes. the cattle producers, I should say. Yeah, uh, it's an indefensible misconstruction of mm-hmm. the Packers Stockyards Act which the court uh, analogized to antitrust law and said, therefore, there must be consumer harm. And so it can't be just because you were adversely affected on your farm. You've got to show that this affected the price of beef to consumers. That's, I can't use expletives on on radio, (laughs) but... um, you know what cattle put out at the rear end, and that's yeah. what this was. But right, right. <laughs> it's the law right now. Um, the few courts have said that's nonsense. The most respected centrist scholar of antitrust law wrote a little essay saying, 
what were they thinking? What were they yeah. drinking that they would come up with a so foolish statement? Uh, uh, it's not, this is bad antitrust law, and it's even worse Packers and Stockyards law because the PSA was intended to protect farmers, individual farmers from discrimination and harm. That All that said, until you get a court of appeals to say the opposite, and then you take a shot at the Supreme Court rethinking all of this uh, and saying, no, courts, you got this wrong, we're not. it's going to be more of a problem. Now, I have seen some really interesting cases where a very, very, very insignificant effect on downstream prices was held by a circuit court to be sufficient to cross that line. So there's some some possibilities out there that we could, uh, you know, you could see some of this, uh, but it's going to require a kind of litigation argument and a sympathetic set of courts. And I worry a lot about the judges who talk about wanting fair and free competitive markets, but not really believing that in uh, in today's world, uh, because they really seem to identify with the big guys and, oh, we don't want to interfere with their freedom of action. And that's right. the wrong way to think about markets. Well, it's it smacks of regulation, doesn't it? And of course, yes. the Republicans are all about, well, we don't want any regulations. We have to let the free market do its thing. Meanwhile, they're driving the rural communities into the ground. And, you know, I mean, eventually my vision, if this if these kinds of issues are not uh, suitably resolved, um, I see farming basically dying in the United States and and we will be importing all of our food from, you know, countries where uh, there are no laws protecting farmers. There are no laws protecting food safety. I mean, this is, to me is such a crucial aspect of, you know, the agricultural picture writ large, uh, that it's just kind of astonishing to me that that more people don't see it from that point of view and that only the idea that that corporations, large corporations should be making a huge amount of money and, and be damned to all of the people who are, you know, the little people um, who are actually doing the, the grunt work of raising the food. Uh, I, you know, I, I don't know how to, I, I was going to ask you if you could wave your wand, what would happen? And then we have to, and then we have to wrap this up because as you know, people can't listen to anything for more than like 30, 35 minutes before <laughs> right, their right. eyes glaze over. So yeah. <laughs> you, you, you see why I tend to, uh, my wife tends to run and hide when I want to talk about egg issues. <laughs> <laughs> We'll just have to have you back, Peter, because you've just been a wonderful guest. But well, so what, what if I had happen? a wand, it would be first to get uh, some of the things I've talked about. We'd get a set of uh, rules out of the Packers and Stockyards Act that would structure these markets. Markets exist under a legal framework. You've got a law of contracts. The Republicans don't want to repeal the law of contracts. They just want laws that run one particular way. So what we need to do is to rethink the legal framework in which uh, poultry, pork, cattle are sold. I throw in dairy. As you know, I'm really yes. interested in dairy. Again, USDA has got some handles that it could set some rules for how those markets function that would be fairer, would make for more equitable competitive environment. Uh, secondly, I would go back and look at the structure of the buying side of the industry in pork and beef particularly. I think that you could go back and either undo some mergers or simply say, look, 
This industry is inherently collusive, and therefore, it's kind of like three strikes and you're out. Uh, you guys, it goes back to 1905 was the first time that you were convicted of price fixing. Right. <laughs> uh, uh, enough already. We can restructure this industry. It would be no problem, no problem. It would be doable in beef and pork, and each company could have several plants so it could get some economies of scope and scale if there are any in multi-plant operations. And you wind up with somewhere between seven and 10 competitors uh, of significant size, all of whom would be competing in the market. It would change the world enormously. That's the kind of wishful thinking that only retired professors are permitted to engage. <laughs> and with that, I'm afraid we have to say goodbye. But gosh, this has just been a delight. Thank you so much, Peter. I really appreciate it. And, you know, sure. I hope that somehow your wish list winds up uh, in the Biden portfolio and they take a good look at what you're saying because it's long past due. So thank you so okay, much for joining you. me today. And uh, thanks to my sponsor. And we'll see you next week, folks. Thanks for tuning in. And um, well, that's all for this week. Stay safe. Stay warm. So long. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.